Super Bowl 43, and they're saying it about, again about Super Bowl 55 today. America could really use a Super Bowl right about now. I can't say that I disagree with that sentiment. In 2009, the nation, the world really, was still reeling from the Great Recession of 2008, the worst recession since the Great Depression, until now, of course. Sometimes sports can indeed be a helpful remedy for tough times, or at least a welcomed diversion from them, right? But we also know as Christians that such earthly remedies are only at best band-aids on a mortal wound, aren't they? Therapeutic for a time, perhaps, as they cover over the unsightly gash and the spreading infection, because this world is perishing, as are all of us in it. That's reality. The word of the Lord keeps us from, from becoming too distracted from facing the fragile nature of our existence. God's word also reminds us, however, that he and only he, our everlasting God, has the ultimate remedy for a dying world, his son Jesus Christ, whom he sent into the world to die for it and rise again as the first fruits of resurrection into the glory that awaits all his disciples. So it's not wrong to sit and enjoy a sports game. I'm sure you're glad to be reminded especially if you're not missing church for said game. In fact, God the Holy Spirit found a sanctified purpose for sports games as a helpful illustration that finds its way into the sacred text of Scripture in our epistle lesson this morning. It comes providentially by way of St. Paul, who was a Roman citizen and had considerable knowledge and familiarity with Greco-Roman culture. He puts that knowledge to redemptive use for us today. Of course, Paul did not exactly have in mind the Super Bowl. The sports he illustrated with came down from Mount Olympus, so to speak, the namesake of the Olympic Games, which originally had their own religious connection as well, because those original Olympic Games were seen as an offering of man's best skills and effort presented to Zeus and the other Greek gods who looked down, they hoped, with a smile of approval from above the clouds in yonder Olympus. Olympiakoi Agones is the actual Greek name of those ancient games. Olympic Agones, from which you can see we derive our English word agony. Those of us old enough to remember can't help but Harken back to sportscaster Jim McKay on NBC's Wide World of Sports as he introduced each episode with the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, he used to say, as he would watch that poor skier wipe out one more time. Paul employs that word in verse 25, rendered there by the English translation exercise, as in every athlete exercises, that is, he agonizes over self-control in all things. There's no doubt, no doubt that a good, well-thought game performed by those agonizing athletes can evoke such thrills. I imagine some of you, quiet and well-behaved Lutherans here at church this morning, will be losing self-control and shouting at the top of your lungs just a few hours from now despite the CDC's guidelines against it. But in the end, for what 
are these athletes striving? That's what Paul is getting at in his sports illustration. What's it all for? All the screaming, party prepping, jersey sporting, swag waving, if you're an armchair quarterback, that is. And if you're an actual quarterback or lineman or free safety in the game with all the year-round weight and speed training, what's all that for? The strict dieting that active athletes must discipline themselves to maintain the self-control and mental focus to learn not only your own strategic moves on the field, but your opponents as well through countless scattering reports, hours of video sessions. What do you get at the end of all this? A ring. A little piece of metal like many of us have on now to put around your finger. Granted, a more expensive one if you are an NFL champion. If you were an ancient Olympic champion, you got a ring or wreath of leaves on your head. How long do you think those leaves lasted? Even precious metals eventually decay, discolor, or dent, albeit much more slowly than some leaves. But if it's the glory that you're after, why, they'll give glory to the next champion, next game, next year, and the next race. They get their 15 minutes, yes, but that too fades. But you, Church of God, as Paul addresses his epistle to the Corinthians, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, I think we're included in that grouping, you run your race for something better by far. Imagine that wreath of laurel leaf placed on your head. You, the victor. And imagine those leaves never spoiling or fading. They never wither or crumble because these leaves come from the tree of eternal life made fully accessible to you in the new earth under the new heaven in God's everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness. You inherit that kingdom. All that is your prize. Paul's trying to tell us, you see, that is surely worth a little agonizing over, don't you think? Look at what these dedicated athletes endure to receive a perishable wreath. But we receive an imperishable one. Have you ever asked yourself, what am I willing to endure to obtain that prize? That, perhaps, is a slightly better question than, for example, what New Year's resolutions I should set this year or what I should give up for Lent as it fast approaches later this month already. Not that those things can't have some value while on our earthly pilgrimage, but in the big picture. One thinks of the church's long list of exemplary saints and martyrs and what they gave up in their run for the prize. Paul was both a saint and a martyr. As crazy as it may sound to us, and it must have been shocking even to the ears of the Corinthian church as well when Paul wrote it, Paul says this imperishable wreath that we're talking about was for himself not even on the forefront of his mind as far as prizes go. That is the prize for which he truly was often suffering in agony, wincing under violent attack, and unfairly thrown into prison was a different sort of prize altogether. 
What then is my reward, Paul asks in verse 18 of our epistle lesson? He answers, that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Did you catch that? Paul wants to boast, but he's not even going to boast about preaching the gospel because that's his duty as he understands it under Christ's orders. No, what Paul strives to boast about is preaching to all while being a burden to none because he wants to avoid putting any stumbling block whatsoever before any potential convert to the faith faith once for all entrusted to the saints. It would have been perfectly within Paul's rights as an apostle, as a steward of the mysteries of God, to ask from those he served and to expect from them expense pay, room and board, plus remuneration for services rendered. This was both biblical, where priests and other ministers were concerned, and standard practice in the New Testament where all the other apostles were getting paid in offerings. Paul even helped obtain one of those offerings for the other apostles while foregoing it for himself. Instead, Paul says, Though I am a free man and nobody's slave, I voluntarily make myself everybody's slave that I might win as many people as possible to the saving knowledge of our Lord. Martin Luther picks up on this Pauline theme in his own day. Luther rightly sees in it the application not just for vocational ministers, clergymen, church workers, and the like, but he sees this as the everyday Christian's calling as well. He writes about it in the early days of the Reformation in a little tract called the freedom of the Christian, or sometimes called a treatise on Christian liberty in 1520. Listen to how he famously starts out this influential tract, which incidentally becomes a favorite down at the Gutenberg printing press offices. They take it and run with it all over Europe. Says Luther in the tract, quote, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Unquote. That's vintage Lutheran paradox right there. But he gets it from St. Paul right here in our epistle lesson, verse 19. I'm free from all, but I make myself a slave to all. Christ indeed has set us free. Paul knew that truth perhaps better than any of us, being the strict Pharisee he once was, zealous for the law, and putting to death Christians whose newfound freedom he once saw as a threat to God's law. What does Paul do with his freedom? Once Christ forgives him and sets him free, Paul uses his freedom to voluntarily subject himself to the harshest of lifestyles for the sake of the lost, both Jew and Gentile. He disciplines his body to keep it under control from, no doubt, all the protesting his body must have been constantly making under such duress. That phrase, I discipline my body, in verse 27, literally in the Greek means, I give myself a black eye. I pummel myself. This is no mere shadow boxing. He's not beating the air. Paul is on the front lines of the game and taking all the hits, even from himself. 
What compels a person to do that? Verse 16 in the NIV says, I am compelled to preach. So whence comes this astounding compulsion of Paul's? We get the explicit answer from Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 5.14 to be exact. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's a straight answer. We no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. Which means we live for others as well as Christ did. And notice here, as Luther was pointing out, this is for us. All of us, Christians, inclusively. Christ's love compels us to endure suffering, willingly, for the sake of our neighbor. Jew, Gentile, believer, unbeliever. This is how Christ loved the world with no partiality. A self-sacrificing love. The kind of love we'll find, like Paul that we'll need to beat our bodies into submission to because it doesn't come naturally to selfless creatures in Adam. But we are new creations in Christ, aren't we? Recreated and conforming to his image with repentance and renewal in Christ as a daily routine in this new Christian life of ours. We already have our game day jerseys on the robe of Christ's perfect righteousness given freely to us, lords and ladies, standard issue at our baptisms. That means, too, Christ's victory is our victory already, along with that imperishable crown that awaits us. And that's not all, of course. Along with the imperishable crown, we'll have the perfect, imperishable athlete's body to go along with it, without the need to diet even. How great will that be? What's more, we'll be completely delivered of all our moral blemishes and every character flaw that so stubbornly clings to our mortal bodies here in our first estate. Yes, we will be not selfish, but selfless and truly free in every way. But you want to know one thing? we won't be able to do there in God's eternal kingdom of glory, that which we are able to do only here in this fallen world. Share the love of Christ with those who are perishing. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, says Paul. That was his calling. That's our calling too, insofar as God has made us fathers and mothers to our children. Friends to our neighbors in need, salt and light to those still in darkness. God is not willing that any should perish. The love of Christ compels us to pray, to serve, and share his love and forgiveness with everybody. We are not all preachers, but we are all witnesses and vessels of God's love shed abroad in our hearts. Sometimes we let that sound scarier than it needs to be. Sometimes we forget that the Holy Spirit has been with us and in us since our baptism. We don't always realize that that faith given us then at baptism is the faith we already have memorized and expressed out loud every Sunday in the words of the creed. 
In other words, we already have our testimony prepared to tell the world what I believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty. We forget too that we have been on a strict training diet ourselves. One that has been nourishing our faith, strengthening it at the Lord's table so that our faith is sustained and can remain fixed and focused on Christ and all that he has done and is doing still for us. We sometimes need a reminder that Christ is today at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, watching over us and preparing us to receive, preparing to receive us rather, when he calls time, game over on this age. Only then shall the church cease its commission and the Lord will tally up the score. Until then, we have our marching orders that continue to lead us into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to, to obey all that Christ our Lord commanded. In that task, Paul was bold enough to say to those same Corinthian Christians whom he disciples, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Like Christ, Paul was purposeful with every step and sought to be ever gracious and loving in all his relationships for their sakes. I do not run aimlessly, Paul declared, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself am disqualified. The last thing Paul would ever want to do while he still had breath on this earth was to somehow disqualify himself from reaching even one precious lost soul. What would that look like to be disqualified? A cautionary tale comes to us from the annals of story, uh, Super Bowl's past. Let me illustrate. Eugene Robinson played free safety for the Atlantic Falcons against Miami in the Super Bowl back in 1999. Despite all the training and mental discipline, that go into preparation for the biggest game of their lives, players still sometimes suffer a lapse of judgment under all that stress. On the eve of Super Bowl 33, Robinson set off to relieve some pressure, which only backfired when he got arrested for soliciting a prostitute that turned out to be an undercover policewoman. Even worse, Robinson, who was known throughout the league as the prophet, because of his well-known Christian faith, had just been awarded earlier that day the Athletes in Action Award for Outstanding Leadership and Character. As one might predict, Robinson played poorly in the big game the following day, including an 80-yard touchdown catch that he gave up in his team's embarrassing loss to the Dolphins. Unfortunately for himself and for all those who looked up to him, Eugene Robinson lost more than the Super Bowl that day. He lost credibility. To his credit, or at least as a step toward rebuilding his integrity, Robinson ended up giving back the Christian Athletes in Action Award. Paul tells his disciple, young Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul also admitted to Timothy that he, Paul, was in his own eyes the chief of sinners. 
and his story from breathing out murderous threats against the church as Saul of Tarsus to his conversion to becoming Paul the apostle to the Gentiles is a testimony first and foremost to God's amazing grace toward unworthy sinners. Amen? That includes all kinds of sinners, whether they be murderers like Paul and Moses or adulterers like King David or those who deny Jesus like Peter. You have to be a sinner to qualify for God's mercy and forgiveness. And where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Sometimes the agony is in our own defeat against the onslaught of daily temptations. But our training teaches us to fix our eyes on the agony Christ endured on the cross for you and me. That's where we behold an undying love, a love that conquers sin. It conquers the grave, and it conquers any doubt we might have ourselves as to whether God loves even me. Just look at the cross. Now come to his table where he gives you his body and blood shed on that cross. He invites you once again to hear, taste, and see that all this goodness is indeed for you and for you to share freely with others. Let's celebrate that victory today and every day. Amen. And now